This conversation on COVID-19 is made possible by Discovery. Hello, I'm Alec Hogg, and welcome to episode 45 of Inside COVID-19. In this episode, some solid, practical money-craft advice during a time when 89% of South Africans are worried how they're going to be able to pay their bills. We hear from the Chinese owners of Village Main Reef on challenges the pandemic has brought for its deep-level mines that are now in care and maintenance. Retired rugby superstar Brian Habana helps fellow athletes find a way to overcome issues flowing from the pandemic and insights into why coronavirus mortalities in some nations are far lower than in others. First in the COVID-19 headlines today, South Africa's coronavirus mortalities hit a fresh high of 82 on Monday. That takes the total beyond 1,000. Confirmed cases, meanwhile, jumped by 2,500, taking that total to over 50,000. It's now the 11th highest in the world. But over in Brazil, the government is facing allegations that it changed the way it counts cases to obscure how bad things really are in the world's new coronavirus hotspot. Bloomberg reports that last week, Brazil's health ministry removed the entire historic database from its website and said it would now only publish new cases and mortalities of the past 24 hours. Brazil tops the world's list of daily deaths, with 813 on Monday taking its total to 37,312, That's third only behind the United States and the UK, both of which are now reporting significantly lower daily mortalities. Brazilian President Jair Bolsonaro has not retracted his criticism of lockdowns imposed by state governors, nor his statement that COVID-19 is merely, quote, a little flu, unquote. Chinese-owned gold mining company Village Main Reef, which owns the shuttered Taolekoa, mine in Orkney and Kopanang mine in Clarksdorp is hopeful that despite COVID-19 challenges, the mines will be able to reopen in two months' time. Chief Executive Jeff Dong told BizNews today that despite having to invest 2.5 billion rand into the operations since acquiring them for 2.2 billion rand in 2015, a restructuring program will keep these mines going for some years into the future. But, he says, the coronavirus pandemic does mean that things will need to be done very differently in future. More from Mr. Dong coming up in this episode. The Hasso Platner Foundation, founded by the co-creator of global software giant SAP, has donated 100 million rand to the South African Solidarity Fund. Berlin-born Platner, who, with his wife Sabine, owns the Fancourt Golf Resort in George, has been closely connected with South Africa since the early 1990s. His foundation has supported HIV and TB-related projects, education and youth care in the Eden District, 
whose best-known towns are George, Neisner, Otsuan and Mossel Bay. After its 16th day of no fresh infections, New Zealand today returned to pre-COVID-19 normality, with rugby matches to be watched by full stadiums planned for the weekend. The country officially moved to level one at midnight last night, with no more social distancing and all precautionary measures removed at gyms and restaurants. New Zealanders say it is as though the lockdown never happened with society moving back to old habits very quickly, although with a little more online shopping, Zoom conferences and working from home. I often say it's a pleasure to talk to people, but it's it's really a pleasure to talk to Haley Goodwin Parry, who I used to know as Haley Goodwin, a colleague from Wow, Haley, a long, long time ago. But you have moved into maybe the most noble of endeavors, helping people to understand their money and your company, Worth Financial Education. You've helped fifty thousand people already so far to to understand this business. We have, Alec, and thank you for having me on your show. It really is a space that I'm very passionate about and it has been a privilege to do the work that we're doing because the reality is that most of us spend a lot of time and energy and money figuring out how to enter the working world and and getting a job so that we can earn money and make a difference. But unfortunately, no one really teaches us how to keep it. There's a real art to that. There's a knack. There's some financial skills and knowledge that you need to be taught and you need to learn. And the sooner you do that and the better you're able to do that, the more options you have in terms of your financial future in particular. And so that's why Worth Financial Education was founded. And I guess that's why I'm sitting here and talking to you today. The people who use your courses, clearly they will be on it or would have been on it when COVID-19 hit. Did you find much feedback from them to say, wow, what do I do now? So, yeah, I mean, Alec, the reality is that personal finance basics have been around a long time, but people often prioritize other things in their lives. You know, personal finance on its own isn't necessarily sexy, except for maybe those of us who've been in financial media beforehand. We obviously had an interest in it always. But for most people, it's not something that's particularly urgent to address. And I think what's changed since COVID-19 arrived is that there are a lot of people in financial pain and suddenly this is something that we can't really ignore anymore. And so, yes, what we did at the start of lockdown is we started working on a course particularly around the space that we found ourselves in. You know, when someone experiences a financial shock, particularly of this magnitude and the unprecedented nature of it, what we did was we sat down and said, how best can we help our learners? Because you have a normal scenario where you can help people figure out what it is that they need to do to manage their money well. And then you have this situation. And this situation really is quite scary. And we had this really unique situation where my business partner and I sat down and the night before we started building this course, he was in a situation personally where his wife's business was decimated by what was happening. She's in the beauty industry. It's a second-generation family business. And she had to retrench over 40 staff the night before. And that had a massive impact on their family personally. 
and not only her business. And that helped inform how we went about this. So when you're doing something with so much skin in the game, there really is personal stories and personal experiences that you use to help build something that you really do help will make a difference. And so it has been a very unique um, journey for us. And it's, it's a deviation from what we've normally done in terms of some of the content obviously needed to be adapted. But I think some of the underlying things remain the same. And that is that if you find yourself in a financial squeeze at the moment, you're normal. There's a lot of people who really are struggling right now. What kind of a roadmap can you give to take those 40 people from your partner's wife's business that she had to retrench? How would you start advising them? And look, I think at the very first step, the one of the things that we believed was really important is that at the end of this, you know, we are all going to come out of this and we will see a return to normality at some point. And what we're trying to do is bridge the gap between now and then. We need to have a, a short, medium and long term plan. And our immediate priority was to look at how do we protect two of the most important things at this time. And we believe that those two things are both your relationships and your cash flow. And so that was the philosophy around which we built a course that did include a roadmap, as you as you reference. So the roadmap that we used in the course that we built for discovery in particular was actually around a traffic light analogy. I think sometimes it helps people to have that visual in their mind. And if you could imagine stopping at a traffic light or a robot, as we like to say in South Africa, because the light is red, that would be what we would call stop and take stock. And I think when you're panicking, when you are financially stressed, and we do know that 89% of South Africans are worried about paying their current bills, that this is affecting all of us. The first thing you can do is just stop and find out where are you? Where are you tracking, particularly in terms of your numbers? So understanding what your budget looked like pre-COVID and understanding what it looked like now is your first step. And the very practical piece of advice I'd like to give regarding that is try and facilitate giving yourself a financial day off. So I think in the workplace, a lot of us are now familiar with the concept of taking a duvet day or taking a mental health day when you just need a little bit of time to sort out some of your personal affairs. And this idea of taking some time to really have a look at your finances is something that we have found has been quite helpful for a lot of our students. And the reason is that when you're stressed, even just sitting down and addressing an issue already helps you feel like it's a little bit more under control. So take a financial health day off if you can, and then take a look at your numbers, because that's where we're going to come to the cash flow side of things. And and immediately that's the most pressing thing, I think, for most people right now is how can we improve cash flow? What is it that we can do to extend our financial runway, as we call it, during this period? What are the most popular tactics that one would use in that way? So there are three tools that we currently suggest that you look at first and foremost, and that is if you have access to credit life insurance, this may be the time that you need to use it. So for somebody who doesn't know what credit life insurance is, it's basically a small insurance premium that you may have been paying without even realizing it whenever you took out some form of credit agreement with a lender, whether it was for buying a car or 
on a personal loan, you may have this protection in place that you don't know about. And what that means is that while you were paying your monthly premiums, you were paying a percentage towards this insurance, which was created exactly for an event like this. So if you are financially stressed, you've had your income reduced, you would then have a claim against this insurance where they would be able to cover some of your repayments if it's in place. Now, we have also come across some people who feel guilty about using this. And I would say, please, you know, you have been paying premiums for this kind of insurance. Please make sure you use it. If it's in place and you qualify for it, this is exactly what it's there for. Another tool would be to look at a debt repayment holiday. Now, the term currently used by a lot of financial institutions is a debt repayment holiday. We feel like it's a slightly misleading term because there's nothing relaxing about a debt repayment holiday. Think of it more as a debt repayment pause. What you're doing is you're asking someone that you've lent money from if you can pause on your repayments. And you will need to pay that money back later and do understand that in some cases, the interest is going to continue to accrue. So you do need to be careful about that. But if you need to free up cash right now to get through the month, then this is definitely a tool that would be available to you. The last of the three big tools that we we talk about is to consider debt counselling. Now, I know for, for some people it's a term that is quite scary, but it is actually a very, very helpful tool. If you still have an income and you are struggling to make ends meet because a large portion of your monthly repayments is going towards servicing debt, this could be the option that really helps increase your cash flow. Because when you qualify for debt counselling, what happens is that your monthly debt repayments can be reduced sometimes by up to two thirds. Now, that can make a big difference in someone's monthly budget. And the reason that that happens is because a lot of the interest has been reduced or negotiated with lenders to be far smaller than it was when you were paying it yourself. It's a period of protection that allows you to get back on your feet. And that's what we're after here. You know, we're wanting to just protect the, we actually call them the four Fs. It's your four walls. It's about being able to put food on on the table. It's whatever you need in order to work. So, for instance, if you need to ensure you can still pay your cell phone bill or your fiber, for instance, so that you can work remotely, you want to be able to protect those payments. And then lastly, the things that are, are critical to keeping your family happy and healthy and functioning. You know, this is about the relationships that we're wanting to protect. So those are three tools that we would recommend people look at in order to just give themselves a little bit more breathing room. Hayley, on the 1F, the four walls, how open are banks to people who've got them, who, who are now through no fault of their own uh, in very difficult circumstances? So what we're finding is that banks are definitely open to helping people. But there is one really important caveat here, and that is that you need to be talking to them. So unfortunately, just sort of burying your head in the sand and avoiding the topic with anyone that you've lent money from, whether it's your mortgage finance institution or anyone else, is that you need to be talking. If you're in a position where you're struggling to pay, please do speak to any of your creditors. 
They are dealing with these calls a lot. This is not uncommon. And they do have plans in place to help people. Some of them are being advertised to the public. Others aren't. But you're not going to be made aware of them unless you actually pick up the phone and say, right, guys, I'm in a situation. I'm no longer able to pay X, Y, and Z. What are you able to assist me with? Because the reality is when you're talking to them, they're always going to be happier to help you than if you just stop paying and you're not talking to them. This is really good, practical, sound, solid advice that you've passed on, Haley. Thank you. Uh, you haven't got a relationship with Discovery Bank. How does that work? Well, we've actually got two relationships within the Discovery Group, Alex. So the first is with Discovery Healthy Company. So anybody who has the Healthy Company um, product suite or EAP through the employer, they are able to access over 18 different short courses that we have built for them. Those range from how to buy a car to how to become financially independent through the FIRE movement, for instance. There really is a broad range of those 18 short courses. And then for Discovery Bank clients, they are able to access two of our longer form courses. Those are called Wealthy Me and Wealthy Couples. And if you're a bank client, you're able to access those for 399 rand straight through the banking app. What got you into this field? So my background was in financial media, as you know, and I I had a real passion for personal finances myself, having sat in a newsroom and seen how many people clicked on articles that wanted to teach people how to further their financial well-being in any way, shape and form. And I then went through a, a really rough patch where I got retrenched by Media24 when I was three months pregnant with my first child. And it just, it seemed like it was now or never. I had been chatting to my business partner, Gary, about starting something. And when that happened, it just seemed like it it was a good time to give it a go. And so we did. It's taken us a little while to to find our feet. But here we are partnering with the likes of Discovery and able to now really make a difference in more and more people's lives. And that really is the thing that gets us up in the morning. We get some wonderful emails that just arrive in our inbox from people telling us how we've made a difference in their lives at home and with their partners and even with their kids. And so, you know, that really does make a difference for us. It really is the reason why we're in business. It's an interesting story that because with COVID-19, many other people who might never have gone into businesses on their own, are now being kicked in that direction. Are you seeing any of that? So I think at this stage, Alec, people are treading water while they try and figure out where things are. I know I speak for myself and a lot of people I know who are just trying to get through the day in terms of managing the work that they do have alongside homeschooling children and running homes with little help. But I do think that this is the time when those kind of seeds are planted. You have been forced through what is probably the roughest time that most people will have lived through in memory. I know when I got retrenched, there was definitely a period of introspection and probably even depression because you question yourself and your abilities. But out of that, you also learn what you're good at. You learn what you're passionate about. And I think these kinds of situations also give you 
the impetus that if you didn't have it before, to understand that life is short and you, and you actually want to go after the things that make a difference to you, both personally and professionally. There are many athletes and sportsmen and women around the world whose hopes for glory this year have been dashed. The biggest of the events cancelled due to COVID-19 was, of course, the Olympic Games that were supposed to have taken place in Tokyo in July and August. It has left many athletes and sports people who rely on sponsors in a lurch and they find it difficult to earn a living. This has prompted Springbok legend Brian Habana to team up with a former school pal, Mike Sharman, to launch MatchKit.co, a platform that gives athletes a solution to grow their commercial brands. They also have a sporting agency called Retroactive Digital, which won the Sports Industry's Young Agency of the Year Award in November last year. Brian and Mike told Business about their platform, with Brian expressing concern about rugby players' safety when the game resumes. Post that pretty incredible victory in Japan in 2019, seeing Sia lift that World Cup trophy a lot, sort of got me thinking from my own experience, you know, why none of the players didn't have any websites, you know, all these different extremities of social media that they've got. But they don't have this consolidated presence of their online environment. And I think, you know, Mike and his thinking ability to, you know, literally garner from, you know, some of the best entrepreneurs in the world and, you know, chatting to venture capitalists, just understanding how we can maximize opportunities that sport presents us. We then came up with this idea of matchkit.co, which in its basic form is an consolidation of an athlete's online presence, no matter, you know, where they are, what tier they're at, what discipline they're, they're involved in or even what age group they are, you know, bringing all that all together and hopefully commercializing it in a way because, you know, it showcases their, you know, their social media, it showcases their sponsors, it showcases the demographics of their, their following and their reach. It gives them an opportunity to set up a merch store um, where they can sell, you know, their own personalized merchandise hassle-free without having to worry about sourcing clothing or garments, you know, worrying about printing, worrying about currying to, you know, to the fans that, that are needed, that are wanting or needing it. And then most importantly, something you alluded to that's very close to my heart, the, the charitable element of sport. And we have seen in this pandemic in particular where, you know, sports revenue, you know, has gone to exceedingly ex- exorbitant losses, being able to give back and, you know, make a difference. And through matchkit.co, we're giving athletes around the world opportunity to raise funds for either their own foundation or a charity of their choice with a very simple and easy to use mechanism. You know, I had to go through the process during COVID of redoing BrianAbanaFoundation.org, you know, worrying about integrating APIs in the back end for payment solutions. And with MatchKit.co, we're taking all that hassle away from the athlete, making it as simple and straightforward to use, but with incredible, incredible amount of visibility um, and simple to use. After some research and some insights, we were, we were really stumped that nothing like this had, had really come to the fore before, especially because of the impact of, of sporting results, sports personalities, the athletes, and how they benefit from digital marketing and their digital audiences. And obviously, like Brian said, that COVID impact has led to sports experiencing an estimated $61.7 billion loss to date because of events that are happening around the world. And Right now, sport is in this really strange flux. If we think about the Olympics being postponed to 2021 and and possibly maybe not even occurring, and if we look at locally in South Africa, the Craven Week, 
as a perfect example for the scouting of young talents, so many of those individuals are poised to make it and kick up to the next level from a professional point of view from that um, that Craven Week scouting. And, and those individuals that, that train their entire lives for one period of, of time to get to the Olympics, that's an entire generation of athletes that are going to lose out on any commercial opportunities. So they have an audience. They have social media. So if we bring all of them together in a constant ecosystem where we can showcase matchkit.co forward slash Brian Habana, for example, forward slash Henry Skuman, for example, forward slash Tammy Beaumont, for example, you've got all these various different athletes who now have the ability to ring fence all of their social media into one space to showcase their marketability. So they're not relying just on the traditional broadcasts of the Olympics to commercialize themselves. They already have that audience. They already have that following, that community. So let's help them get back into the game. Are they traditionally not very good at that, at branding themselves and, and marketing themselves? Yeah, I think they are really good at it. The, the problem that you're currently facing is you've got all these extremities and all these different avenues of having to worry about, you know, posting the, the exact hashtags on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, you know, a lot of things has happened now with TikTok, you know, and when we won the World Cup in 2007, Linda, you know, the, the biggest thing everyone was worrying about is how many friend, Facebook friend requests you were getting. And, you know, all of a sudden now through lockdown, you know, Mike and the team, um, you know, putting all these things together, you know, have come up with an MVP, which I've had to learn isn't the most valuable player, uh, but it's rather the, mo- the minimum viable product to consolidate and bring all these things together for the athletes, you know, making them very easily showcase their sponsors. You know, athletes tend to forget to, to mention sponsors or as a collective, you know, they're not allowed when they're in Springbok camp or in their national camp or with the Bulls, you know, to name their individual sponsors. So, you know, the commercial rights and the collective commercial rights are sort of, you know, really, really protected and safeguarded. And the individual ability of them to commercialize themselves isn't always at the forefront. But with matchkit.co, when you potentially don't have space, if you've got four sponsors to put them all in a Twitter or Instagram bio, you, know, you can't list all your sponsors' websites on, you know, on your Instagram bio profile. And same with Facebook and, and the rest. So I think what, what we've been, what we've really done with matchkit.co, and it has accelerated because of this COVID pandemic, is potentially giving them now the opportunity to generate a revenue from sending videos, sending voice notes that are personalized to their fans around the world, but in a consolidated environment that really showcases who they are and what their online presence is all about. Right. The work you've been doing, delivering food to communities, what was that like? What did you find out there? Yeah, obviously, you know, this pandemic has... It's not something new, but I think what the pandemic has brought to light is the massive need from a humanitarian aid perspective that so many in South Africa are, you know, are really needing. And, you know, I sort of wanted to play my part. I was pretty fortunate to have teamed up with Ozo as a financial services payment partner and, you know, started raising funds. And, and we've been going into communities across the Western Cape where I'm based over the course of the last four weeks. You know, doing collaborations with One SA um, and giving people uh, who are absolutely destitute, who have nothing, you know, some you know some shacks you go into and you know people and their gratitude, you know, sort of touches your heart in a in a way so deeply because they tell you that they haven't eaten for a day or two and that they didn't know you know when their next meal was going to be. And I think for us, you know, as athletes, as celebrities, you've got an opportunity to to try lend a hand and make a difference. And I'm extremely fortunate for the life that rugby has given me. Um, I'm extremely fortunate that, you know, I was able to you know, play my part in nation building. But I think at the moment, to be able to give back and, and make a difference. 
And it seems while you were doing all this, you had quite a bit of fun. Did I spot an orange Superman suit somewhere there? Um, what's your superpower <laughs> apart from the ability to play rugby really well? No, so I actually hadn't gone, got out the house for, for the first three weeks of lockdown level five in South Africa. Um, and just made sure that, you know, I didn't want to climb into any of the PPE that is needed for our, for our healthcare workers. So I managed to find a, a dress up outfit that I wore to my son's fifth birthday party last year. It's Baymax. He's pretty cool. Um, you <laughs> know, has a health element to him as well. But yeah, I think, you know, I've been a guy that's always loved engaging, you know, with my kids. Again, being able to not only have fun, but hopefully make a difference um, in people's lives is, uh, is incredibly important to me. And how did you stay fit? I saw you planking with two small children on your back. Yeah, thankfully the, the online challenges that had happened were only very short-timed ones. And then obviously Instagram stories, you only got 15 seconds and you know, just over a minute on, you know, on a full post. So um, I'm not going to be saying I've been extremely efficient at training. Uh, I got myself a what bike two weeks ago. So, you know, started last slowly getting back into the swing of things. But since retiring, I'm probably in no condition remotely to even consider playing a game of touch rugby, let alone full contact one. Okay, and the Blitz box, I mean, they wanted to go to the Olympics. They must be so devastatingly disappointed that they couldn't go. Yeah, I think, you know, the Blitz box, uh, not just from a, from an Olympics perspective, you know, the HSBC 7 series has, has come to an end, unfortunately, because of this pandemic. So uh, a lot of athletes around the world, you know, go through this four-year block of doing everything in their ability to try be as prepared as possible to go to the pinnacle of sport, which is the Olympics. And, you know, the Pittsburghs were in a bit of a rebuilding phase. And, yeah, like I said, I think, you know, the, we're all feeling it. Me now being a fan and a supporter, um, I'm sort of sick to yes, the nth degree of having to name my best ever 15 or being compared to Ches and Colby and Makazoli Mapimpi, who are the first ever players to score a try. In a rugby World Cup final, which potentially doesn't say much about my rugby career, you know, and you know, <laughs> sports across the globe that have, have been effective, as, as Mike alluded to, the you know, the remuneration and revenue, you know, is something astronomical. So yeah, you know, you feel for them. It is absolutely you know distressing and distraught times for all athletes, no matter what your discipline. Uh, if you were aiming and working, achieve that pinnacle of being at the Olympics, and I think Tokyo post. Rugby World Cup 2019, you know, was set up to be one phenomenal experience, uh, to say the least. So, extremely disappointing, and you know, hopefully, I think you know, everyone is just hoping that player welfare is put at the forefront of a decision-making process when it comes to a return to play protocol. Because rugby, being a contact sport, you know, is, is much different from from golf or tennis or, or you know, one of those other individual sports. So, obviously, we understand the know the close proximity from a contact perspective so you know when you, you're scrumming um you know you can't really social distancing now they're trying to look at rules changes to you know to accommodate those but you know one doesn't really want the essence of rugby to be lost in 2015 a chinese company called heaven sent acquired village main reef one of the oldest south african miners however Things haven't gone terribly well since that purchase. The chief executive, Jeff Dong, is with us now. Mr. Dong, you've been all over the media, or the mining media anyway, recently, um, with issues about COVID-19 putting your company or Village Main Reef on the verge of collapse. 
where are you right now? Because it's, it was a big investment to start off with by the Chinese company. And then secondly, you've really had to pump a lot more cash in in the subsequent five years. Yes, thank you very much for having me and having the opportunity to explain what the situation is exactly about VMR. First of all, thanks for acknowledging the fact that Evanson't acquired Village Main Reef in 2015 and subsequently invested a lot of money to try to sustain the company and its operations, including thousands of jobs. So the situation now with VMR is that I was appointed to come here in South Africa permanently to be, to take the executive role of CEO by the board and investors. Because as you said, things were not going well previously. As a matter of fact, we were pushing to get VMR listed last year in 2019 to get more funding so that we can continue to invest. However, because of the underperformance as well as the fatality issues, Due to seismic event at Taulikwa Mine, we weren't able to push that through, which is very unfortunate. And that put the company into a very dire situation where there was potentially a close down of the business by the end of last year. So the investor, the uh, shareholders basically saying we have to now step in and manage the business ourselves. And then that's why I came here in February. After I came, we actually started to do a lot of changes and turnaround strategies, I believe with that strategy, we would be able to have a better position. However, it was abruptly stopped by the outbreak of COVID-19 and the issues associated. So I think the current situation is pandemic and all the related micro environment, operational environment has pushed VMR to a position that we have to really fundamentally restructure the business. So that's where I want to address that this current, all this media reporting and et cetera, despite the negative emotional comments, et cetera, it's in fact a restructuring effort to continue save the company because I'm actually sitting between the company, its 6,000 employees and the shareholders who have been funding the business during the past five years of over 2.5 billion rand. And now I need to bring two parties together so that we can have a restructured business that's sustainable, can make money, and then the shareholder can continue funding the business so that we still have a business going forward. That's basically the situation in a nutshell. Mr. Dong, what's your background? My background is financial management, so I've been uh, in charge of Heavenson Goats, uh, Heavenson Capital investment in mining sector for the past five years. So basically, I'm not a miner. <laughs> I don't know operational mining, but I have a team, a new team appointed as well to help me to do that. What is happening on the mine right now in level three of the lockdown? Since lockdown from level five, uh, we have put the mine, the underground mine into care maintenance. So we've been trying to keep the assets, the properties, the tunnels, the panels, etc not impacted by the non-operational environment. And then we started the restructuring and start to engage with unions. Obviously, I think for two reasons. One, there is a definitely a breakdown of communication between us, the unions, and the unions with their uh, members because of constrictions in, in lockdown regulation. 
So there's misinformation flowing around. And also, I think because people are, especially the, the general mine workers, are concerned and scared and unsure of what's happening, especially at these two assets, which they know are in danger of a restructuring. And previously, they were about to close down, actually. So people are are quite emotional, uh, I guess, and which prevented certain constructive discussions. And then uh, what you see on the media, there has been disruptive protests. There have been threats to our management team. There are being a lot going on. But we, I think we're still trying to manage that. And we, our engagement with the unions are uh, progressing. So this is the current situation. So what happens next? Next, we believe that the engagement with the unions and employees are going to a concrete stage. Now we're discussing the specific plans. We've gone past, I think, I believe, we've gone past the emotional stage. So now we're sitting down really discuss about the business itself, uh, the restructuring plan. So I hope in the next four to eight weeks, if I may, we want to close a engagement with the stakeholders and start to really executing the restructured operational plan and hopefully can bring the mine back to operation as soon as possible, which I believe will be able to sustain the two operations for another substantially longer time and save as much job as possible. And more importantly, once it's sustainable, we will be able to get more investment consolidation you know, creating more jobs. It's very good for local economy, you know, especially for the Klugstrop area, which basically are depending on mine operations like us to, to sustain. Scientists have been trying to work out why some populations have fared better in the COVID-19 pandemic than others. They are looking at why Germany, for example, came off relatively light from the pandemic, but the United Kingdom was hit particularly hard. There is the example also of one village in Italy called Ferrara Erbogogne that did not have a single case of COVID-19, even though Lombardy was the epicenter of the outbreak in Italy. Professor Carl Friston from University College London, who is a computer modeling expert, has suggested that low fatality rates recorded in Germany could be due to unknown protective factors. He said it was similar to dark matter in the universe, which we know is there, but we cannot see it, and he has coined the phrase immunological dark matter to describe the differences between countries and populations' susceptibility to COVID-19. He told Freddie Sayers from the website Unheard that the differences between countries are not primarily down to government actions, but are due to intrinsic differences in their populations. The modelers are facing a very difficult, what we call an inverse problem. Uh, So to put it simply, we have data and we'd like to know what's causing the data. So the latent causes, those like the prevalence of infection or the probability that I'm going to transmit the virus to another person. These latent causes are hidden. We can't observe them directly. So there's this sort of mapping between cause and consequence where we can see the consequences, but we can't see directly the hidden latent causes. So 
the, the notion of dark matter in a generic sense was just meant to convey the idea that there's stuff underneath the data that we actually want to get to. There is a subpopulation or a proportion of uh, any population that may not participate in the same kind of way as the susceptible individuals that transmit and communicate and spread the virus and suffer the symptoms of it. So when one applies these models, you know, inverts the data from Germany and inverts the data from England under the same form of the models and asks what are the best explanations for the observed death rates, the new cases, what are, what are the best explanations for those differences? And what, when you actually run this, these models, it looks as if Germany is behaving as if it had a greater popula- proportion of its population that seemed to be out of the game in some subtle way in terms of transmitting or being susceptible to, to viral infection. So that's basically what the model was telling you. So you put all of these sort of causes, all these latent factors and parameters into the models. I need to know the prevalence of infection, the probability that if I'm infected versus not infected, will I be tested? How likely am I to be tested? Where will I be? You know, which depends upon you know, the, the prevalence, you know, social distancing uh, strategies. All of these things have to go into the model. Then you ask, I don't know these things. I have prior beliefs about them. You can specify those um, quantitatively. Now, adjust all of these causes, all these potential contributors to the data and tell me what the best explanation is. And when you look at that, surprisingly, I mean, it was surprising to me, in fact, it shouldn't have been retrospectively, but surprisingly, it was not, if you like, the societal or institutional or governmental responses that seemed to show the biggest differences when you looked at the differences between these inferred parameters and these inferred causes. It was much more something intrinsic to the way that the population seemed to respond to the introduction of the virus. And have you looked, is, is that just with between those two countries or have you observed the same effect in other countries, Japan, South Korea? Oh, you know, there is enormous variations amongst, uh, among countries and there is a, a proportion of the population that seems relatively less susceptible to infection than others. Uh, you know, perhaps it'd be interesting to talk about the different hypotheses that mm. could be to the table to, to explain that. At the moment, my reading of the, the science and the epidemiology, this seems to be the big focus. And exactly as you intimate, solving that, understanding that source in terms of this non-susceptibility is probably going to be the key to understanding the enormous variation from one country to another country. I mean, it's, you know, it astounds me when I look at the way so the Caribbean islands or Singapore or even indeed India it, it is expressing the epidemic or the pandemic in relation to other countries. There, there has to be some explanation for this. And I think most people now are looking at the various mechanisms that might explain why some people respond so differently from other people. What kind of hypotheses have you come across? One popular hypothesis was vitamin D, because apparently Germans have a higher degree of vitamin D, and it also might explain the um, ethnic minorities in um, countries like the UK that have suffered worse, that apparently that might work. What, what do you think of the vitamin D idea? I think it's very appealing. Um, 
Well, I should say I'm smiling because uh, out of ignorance and because I'm more of a mathematician than uh, than, than than a virologist or a uh, somebody who's expert on in vitamins. I'm also smiling because I got uh, at least 20 emails, very thoughtful, sometimes from members of the public, but clearly you know, you're very switched on and informed members of the public. Sometimes from professors or, you know, around around the world, all with very compelling hypotheses about what could account for this sort of non-susceptibility, this sort of uh, pre-existing, possibly pre-existing immunity, ranging from vitamins. In fact, spices was one uh, observation that the Germans like, apparently like more spicy foods and, and all sorts of... Right. I, but when you drill down on it, they were all very compelling, all supplied with academic references and some, some, quite, you know, some quite compelling background work. They range from sort of psychocultural attitudes to older people, communication, um, uh, you know, that, that gets into the game via social distancing and, uh, and the like, right through to genetic predispositions and inheritance of certain sort of gene pools from one part of the country. So, you know, ranging from the, sort of the genomic right through to the, to, to, to the psychosocial. I think they're all probably right. I think the more important thing from my point of view, these are all viable hypotheses, some more plausible, some less plausible. So what we need now is a way of evaluating the evidence for these hypotheses. Of course, the one that everyone is most interested in all the time is government interventions. Can we go so far as to say that's not borne out by the evidence? And in fact, there are other things that are more important than government interventions. So that, that's a big question. You know, how much is it what we do and how much can we prescribe what we do versus do we really need to understand the thing that we're dealing with in terms of uh, differential susceptibility? Uh, beyond vitamin D, that's one example of one of the three kinds of hypotheses you might want to entertain. So that would be a hypothesis pertaining to host factors. But there's something different about your average German versus your average Scot. That might be one explanation for differential non-susceptibility, but there are others. For example, it could be that you have a pre-existing immunity that could be cross-immune activity with the other four beta coronaviruses that cause common colds, and therefore where you're going to have a differential susceptibility depending upon your exposure to other beta coronaviruses. That incidentally might not show up on antibody screening. There are other explanations, such as simply you're not exposed geographically. You know, you could be shielding, you could be sequestered in your attic for 12 weeks. You could be on an island. The wave of infection may not have encroached upon your region. There are well-studied alternative hypotheses for the nature of the population and its structure and its heterogeneity. So you may have come across this notion of super spreaders and over dispersion. That's now the, you know, the big game, I think, in the current modeling is understanding that. So all of these hypotheses, you'll note, say nothing about lockdowns, testing and tracking, surveillance uh, of a PCR or antibody sort. They're all about understanding the nature of the thing that we're trying to handle. This has been episode 45 of Inside COVID-19. I'm Alec Hogg. Until tomorrow, cheerio.
This conversation on COVID-19 was made possible by Discovery.